Can I just say, very clever to orient this exercise around Stephen's favorite movie. It keeps it personal and yet adds an important touch of fun. I think we're in a good place with this. It's really come along, Allie. You've really come a long way, son. Thanks, Leslie. To you. You kept me regularly focused on my recovery. Well, you did all the heavy lifting, kid. Well, as the wolf says in my favorite movie, Pulp Fiction, let's not start sucking each other's s*** quite yet. Wow. Can't you hear that rooster crowing? You know, it really takes a lot to leave Leslie Claret speechless, but that might be the most apoplectic we've seen him so far in the series when uh, uh, Ali O'Donnell decides to uh, really just uh, cut to the chase. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Macmillan Men. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show Patriot. My name's Luke Burbank, and uh, right over there is my friend and fellow um, what uh, large-scale piano Dance enthusiast Andrew Walsh, sure. I, could, I or just your fellow McMillan man. I also answer to that. But honestly, can I make one before we even get into the show, or even setting up what we just heard too much? I just want to say, is that scene we just heard not like kind of the? I don't know if polar opposite is the right word, but we're seeing Leslie in kind of the opposite level of power than he was the last time we saw him kind of in a big company situation where he had to kind of cross the room and apologize to Stephen in front of the nurse. Then he was kind of a, more of a broken man. He was further down in the company chain than he wanted to be. He was like kind of reprimanded and had to take this walk of shame. And now here he is and he's feeling very confident of himself. He's been promoted to actually handle the full operation. And he and it just sort of represents everything kind of turning around for him in this particular moment. Except as it relates to her, to Stephen's therapist. She's yes. still going to, of course, as we used to say in the church, uh, the Lord is not a respecter of persons. I don't know what that even really? means, but I can tell you, yeah, she is not a respecter of persons. She's like, just, she's, you know, I mean, again, she's not emotionally regulated as far as I can tell. Um, this is episode eight, La Affaire Contra John Lakeman. Uh, things start out at the King Gerald where, um, well, I think the big kind of the big important thing that happens before the credit start of this episode is the scene that's actually unfolded 30 days earlier where uh, uh, you have the dad of the Kandahar brothers. Uh, I also, we find I didn't realize that uh, the that uh, Wallace Kandahar is the dad and Keeman Kandahar is alternate ver- universe Cool Rick. Where they're basically sitting on a porch, and the conversation that unfolds is extremely Tavner mm-hmm. to me. I mean, it's just it's right down to the dads both being bald. It's like the exact thing, uh, the exact sort of same thing from the opposite end is being asked of this brother to go help with this project. And you just kind of you can just see. I mean, it doesn't take a uh, a trained television critic or whatever to see the kind of way that this is, has been set up. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we started to see the seeds of this, I think, in the, the was it just the previous episode or two episodes ago when they say, hey, the best way to get at the bag man 
is to understand the thinking of the Bagman's brother, because essentially the Bagman's brother is like kind of alternate universe Cool Rick, yeah. which also we do see Cool Rick. Can't not be. It can't, 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 not be can't not be. How do you say his name? Kaiman? Is that the Bagman's brother, as I call him when I'm watching uh, the show? Keeman, I think. Keeman. Is the dad says at one point. We see him and Cool Rick actually um, having cold ones together uh, and kind of talking about the situation and how Keeman is, is concerned about his missing brother and he's, he's laying this all out for Cool Rick. I had a bit of a question about that. Like, are they friends now or do they just keep running into each other? Like, did they set that up? Hmm. Like, hey, call, hey, I texted you so we could get together and have some cold ones. I kind of doubt that. I think in this world, coincidences just happen and maybe they ran into each other on the street again as they're wont to do and maybe sat down and had a beer yeah i mean i think they kind of they're pretty much like the two large the two men of of sort of large carriage wearing track suits in luxembourg mm-hmm. on any given day so they probably sort of tend to gravitate towards each <laughs> yeah, other right find yeah. each other yeah that's a it's um, a really touching scene though huh when the bagman brother is talking about how i don't know if he's right about blue not appearing in nature very often but he really he gets really poetic, and he says, you know, the sky's not really blue, and the sea isn't really blue, and I'm not really blue either, usually. I thought it was kind of funny, too, when the dad um, – what is the thing that uh, Keeman is saying that the dad – I forget that uh, he's trying to explain – oh, lo- why so long in the face? Oh, yes, and he right. And like, he was like, what does that mean? He's like, you've been, in, you've been here for 25 years. Right. When are you going to figure this stuff out? He kind right. of just flipping his dad's shit. But, yeah, you know, that scene between Keeman – and Edward Tavner is like it's heartbreaking because it's like you you really wish as a viewer that there was just a universe where these two guys could just be friends like real friends and not actually on opposite sides of this dumb thing where one of their brothers has killed the other yeah and frankly if the other had maybe had the chance I mean I can't look into his heart but I mean these are enemies this is this is like the sheepdog and the um and the the coyote or whatever that you know fight all day they come in they clock in they mm-hmm. fight all day and then they clock out at the end of the day it's like you see these two guys who are really on opposite teams but they if they just lived in Dallas near each other they'd be buds they would love each other yeah although i would say that he doesn't know i mean i guess cool rick knows that they're on opposite sides of this thing but right now Heeman doesn't have any idea right. that cool rick is even on the right. other side which, of it which is which you know which makes, which again, just makes the whole thing so sad to me because, like, those two guys just hanging out and derping it up together is a real joy to Amen. watch. They just, they're both just good. They're, I mean, in their heart of hearts, they're both good dudes. You know, uh, you know, as as my late grandfather-in-law would say, they're kind of dumb, but they can't help for it. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> they're just kind of a couple of good guys derping it up. Um, uh, then we get the we get the credits and we are uh, Aget is trying to make the case uh, that uh, she that that she needs to go back over to the states to keep investigating this thing. She talks about Luxembourg being the money laundering capital of the world. Also, uh, we we see where John wrote seventy is it seventy seven Day Champlain. I'm always getting confused mm-hmm. as to what exactly he wrote. Um, on the uh, time card, I guess that he, I guess that that that's from the airport because when he realizes the bag is stolen and he runs into that little like hut and he's looking at the employee roster 
That's why he wrote it down on that particular piece of paper, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I kind of don't want to get too hung up on that either. But my brain did do a little hiccup on that too. There was she. They throw a lot of details into that scene when right. she's explaining her case in front of the international court, what I assume to be the international court, um, and or tribunal or whatever the heck it is. Uh, and she mentioned that it's on the back of a time card, and I was like, oh wait, oh the time card. Oh, I guess yeah. That was like a little detail. It was almost like a detail too far for me because it made me confused as to why it was on a time card. But yeah, that's what I I put together. I think is just because he he's you know he's writing it down and before he goes off and chases uh, Edgar uh, Barros. So by the way, Agat's theory is a one hundred percent accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to see how smart she is. She's laying it out there, and this is all she's just doing this all from piecing together information. But she describes exactly what happened with that bag and how John ended up in the Barros apartment and how that person ended up dead. Like she has it totally figured out. Yeah, absolutely. There's another. Speaking of details, can I just share? I'd kind of out of order here, a little um, a little note that a listener sent us. Schaefer, you know how there's been a lot of uh, Towns Van Zant references in this show? Yeah. Um, well, uh, Schaefer says uh, when they're using words with friends to communicate, John's name is Mr. Mud, which is another reference to the Towns Van Zant universe. It's a song, Mr. Mud and Mr. Gold. And that's my Texas mm. singer-songwriter nerd out for the day, says listener <laughs> Schaefer. I just wanted to share that because I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, so we uh, cut to uh, John trying to learn card tricks in his second office, a.k.a. the pipe. And then he's on the phone with his dad, and his dad is saying, I might pull you out of there today. John says, cool. Because, I mean, I took that to be the understatement of the year. Like, I think John would be very excited to be pulled off of this whole situation. Don't you? Wouldn't you agree? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that's, I think, kind of the – I think that's kind of the – joke if joke is the right word which it probably is not but i mean this scene with him sitting in the pipe i i had kind of said we'd we'd seen a we'd seen another version of this in an earlier episode where it's like this perspective of john sitting in the pipe and as he's having one conversation with one person you see another person approaching from a different angle mm-hmm. and this is kind of a um and i had said there's a bigger version of this coming up and this is what we saw in this episode it honestly not to speak in hyperbole but it might honestly be my favorite scene of the TV show. Like, when I think of wow. this TV show, I think of that scene and how uh, people are moving at different speeds, like Dennis is moving mm-hmm. slowly, and you see him coming from a long way away. Other people just sort of creep up into the shot quickly. Um, I, I actually wrote down... So it starts with the phone call from his dad saying, hey, we're going to pull you out of there. Okay, so he says, cool, which, as you say, is kind of hilariously understated, but that's a huge relief for him. He wants out of there. And then Birdbath just walks by really quickly while he's on the oh, phone right. and says, uh, midnight, because he wants to meet him at midnight for another mission. And then the HR guy comes by really quickly and just says, you got the paperwork yet? No. Um, and then Ichabod comes in, and we yes. finally figure out what Ichabod's end game is. He knows that he has some kind of dirt on John. He thinks John's been lying about his credentials and his uh, schooling. And what he wants out of it is some non-sexual same-sex cuddling, he says. And he says, I'll give you more details on that later. Um, then Lawrence <laughs> comes <it>. up. <laughs> Lawrence comes up and says, okay, the company's bankrupt. We have a big announcement tomorrow. Of course, we know that big announcement will be that Leslie will be kind of taking the reins, which is not good for John. Then the nurse comes up, my favorite character. The nurse comes up and uh, scolds John for not being all in on Stephen's recovery. Then Dennis, who we see approaching for a long part of this shot. And again, this is all one shot. Dennis has been slowly making his way up. 
to John and he tells him that he's been living in a very depressing uh, hotel room with a TV yeah. chain to the wall uh, because he's <laughs> yeah. been kicked out of his house for getting herpes for sleeping with a prostitute, um, which he thinks I'm is I'm surprised John's that video fault. didn't clear him. I thought it was very yeah, well done. right. Yeah, yeah, that apparently didn't work. Uh, and then Stephen himself comes up, and I can't remember exactly what he says to John, but in other words, and then Tom calls again at the end of all of this and says yeah. he reverses what he had just said, like I don't know, three minutes earlier, which was, "Nope, you need to stay there. We're not pulling you out, and you need to ace everything because there have been some developments." And uh, this whole scene is just like you want to talk about circles. It's like this whole scene, the noose is just tightening around John, and then. It ends with the worst news and then the close-up of john's face he like you say he understates his cool when he finds out he's going to be pulled out but we know in our heart of hearts that he's very excited about this and then three minutes later you know he gave in to hope for three minutes and now it's all taken right. away again and you just see how crushed he is on his face the th steven's therapist Allie, i f i find what she says in that scene to just be also pretty ominous uh she says like fyi i'm a fighter and yeah. I'm going to fight for these memories. And you're like, oh, yeah, don't yeah. please don't fight for those memories too hard. And that's kind of uh, that's later on, you know, in the episode. But it's like we kind of see like Stephen's mastery of the big piano thing is kind of I think it it's a representative of him getting his brain back. And the better he's getting at the song, the more the pressure is on mm -hmm. John, because it just means that he's sort of his brain is getting reconstructed and that's going to, you know, that's going to be bad. For, for John and for the mission. Yeah, and I think it's really cool what they do next in the scene um, after this pipe scene. We're like, wait a second, how come Tom called John, said, we're pulling you out of there pretty vehemently? Then three minutes later, after all these people come up to him, he says, nope, you got to stay there. He calls him back and says, we're not pulling you out. Well, what happened in those three minutes? And I think the show does a cool thing. They switch to those same kind of three minutes from Tom Tavener's point of view, where he's uh, having drinks in D.C. with his intelligence um, friend, let's say, who kind of found out that the bag is in the jail or in the police station. It's going to be released in a few days with the artist, the puppeteer who stole it. And they also intercepted some intel that says that the Iranians, Iranians. know it, Iranians know it, and, uh, and that they are going to be there to try to intercept the bag. So now all John needs to do to put everything back back on track is intercept that bag again before the Iranians do. As they say from a 23-year-old Japanese puppeteer. Right. Which is like, you know, it's like this seems like a very doable mission. They also break out some language, ravel it back in. Oh, right, I yeah. Like that. I don't think, I haven't, I've never heard that, to ravel it back in. I like that. It's very evocative. Um, so uh, this also just like, I feel like that scene... When John eventually gets the news that he not only is he not going to be able to be pulled from the mission, but that he's got to nail the mission and he's got to go into it even harder. He drops the cards. Mm -hmm. And to my mind watching it, I was like, that's him dropping any chance of mental health or any hope of mental health or mental sort of him. Him trying to do the cards is him trying. It's him saying, maybe I can do some stuff that will de-stress me he's and then he drops those cards and so it's like he's like fuck it it's just like i'm giving up like this is not i don't i'm not going to be able to be somebody who has a mental and emotional stability in my life yeah and these shots are just so beautiful so beautiful and so bleak like i love kind of industrial shots whether we're talking about photography or things that take place in kind of gritty industrial areas i love soto i love driving 
into Seattle from the airport because you drive through the more industrial part of the city. I just like I'm drawn to this kind of you stuff. Lived, you lived for a time in the shadow of Cleveland Screw, <laughs> Lake Erie Screw. Um, I do Erie think Screw. so. Actually, I think that I grew up in the Rust Belt, which makes me like it anyway. And we did have like a lot of factories. We were talking on TBTL the other day about those factories that like release gas and. Um, and set, send fire into the air. Like, I remember mm-hmm. me and my friends going and with our camcorder and recording some sort of dumb, arty, pointless movie uh, with that as the <laughs> back shot. Um, and also, not only did I grow up in that area, but, of course, my dad kind of working in that, in that field, making these industrial machines for Lake Erie Screw and whatnot. I have a feeling that is why I'm drawn to it aesthetically. But it's also just, like, it's so beautiful but so bleak in, in these long, wide shots where the camera doesn't move it's just i don't know man i i again i know i'm given to hyperbole this might be what i think of as the crowning jewel of the entire series this episode um we we get into the birdbath uh thing too uh which of course up to this point in the show certainly the first time through i just thought birdbath was just the most horrible mm-hmm. of horrible people it's just a dirty cop and now he's just trying to you know, squeeze Lakeman to clear his name. Um, but what we're going to find out is that he's doing absolutely the opposite, that he feels terrible about it and that about, about this police shooting that he was involved in and that he's trying to basically get himself found guilty, but it didn't work somehow. Um, uh, when he says to when Bird, I don't know if you remember this scene, but Birdbath says, how dark are you? Mm-hmm. Is that a? He just means like what? Just like how, like, it does he mean how? Like how? How dark will you go with this? Like, do, what? Do, what is he? What is he asking with that? Yeah, Bird I think he, when he asked John because that. it comes up again at the end of this scene where he says, "Just mm-hmm. go a little darker and kill me." So he says, "What were you going to do mm-hmm. with that tree branch in my bedroom right. when I was sleeping when you thought you were sneaking up on me?" And John says, "I was just going to, I was just going to break your face and." you know into a million pieces so that you knew i was serious so we learned that john at least doesn't think that he was going to try and kill birdbath but just get him to leave him alone and then um so he responds how dark are you it sounds rhetorical at first kind of like god how dark are you bro but really what he's saying is is can you go darker and then he explicitly says it later like basically do to me what you're going to do with the tree branch only do it with my nightstick and finish the job go a little bit darker because i need to die on the job in order to get all the insurance money and have it to go to the family of the victim that I killed when I was drunk on the job. And it's kind of an amazing, that's a pretty amazing reveal on the show is that this is what birdbath has been working mm-hmm. towards. Yeah. Also, there's just a great, a, a just very subtle little piece of writing that for some reason jumped out at me that I find so fascinating. Like birdbath says uh, he's not nine, like people said, but 14. Yeah. But still. Yeah. Like, yeah, that just, really sticks kind of, out to me too. Because he's not trying to say that it was okay, but it also still bothers him that it's been misreported that the person was nine because that would be somehow on a different level. A nine-year-old, you know, is one thing. A 14-year-old is another thing. None of it should have happened, but he wants to clarify, just at least to John, not nine like they said. Isn't that brilliant? I honestly thought about that later because this show has such an interesting relationship with dialogue, I think. In some ways, it's obviously very stilted, and it almost seems like this is taking place in kind of a magical universe at times, and people don't really always talk the way people talk. It's got this kind of uh, this banter that is... um, um, kind of not unlike uh, 
Oh, why am I blanking on his name? We've said it a million Mammoth. times. Mammoth, yeah, like wag the doggy, kind of like the, this 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 patter and this banter, and people don't talk that way. Yet there are these details that are thrown into the writing um, that just seem kind of unnecessary if you're glossing over details, but instead they just add so much layer to the story and to the characters. And so you know that, like you just said, it does bother Birdbath of the age is off a little bit. Like they could have just, the writers could have just had 14 from the very beginning or had them stay nine, you know, but they wanted yeah. to just kind of call it out that things are complex. Yeah, because, and that's when this, I think that's when the show is really working for me, which is most of the time, honestly, it's because I, even though this is this odd, very stylized universe, it still, it echoes my experience at times. All of us can relate to that idea of like knowing you're in the wrong, but also you want to clarify something about how, okay, yeah, I was in the wrong, but this also is a thing. You know what I mean? Like that that need to sort of put stuff in context or to just, just for the sake of the record, you know, I can identify with that kind of feeling. Thankfully, not on the level of yeah. like killing someone and the difference in their age but just that feeling of just being like wanting to kind of like well it wasn't actually this but okay but even so you know like that is a very human moment from birdbath and again it's like you really this is just there's something about the physicality of birdbath throughout mm -hmm. where he just he looks like he's just gonna be the bad guy in the show mm -hmm. and he says that and, he says i have a well he says i look yeah. dumb i guess not i look evil but he right. says i guess i just have a face people think i'm dumb and you don't know why he's saying that but how it all ties together he starts by saying i have a dumb face people think i'm dumb so therefore i started trying to like use a bigger vocabulary to impress people and then <laughs> yeah. using the bigger vocabulary meant that he told this uh kid who doesn't speak english as a first language to halt instead of stop and when the kid doesn't stop he shoots him and he thinks if he had just said yeah. stop the kid would have understood it yeah like i mean the, how about being that actor who's great in Just this by the so way so good how about getting so good getting cast and you're stoked because you're in this cool <laughs> show and, and, right. and then you get to like you get to episode eight and you're like oh that's why they cast me i have a dumb face because i can play a dumb face guy <laughs> you know and i love too by the way that the, you know not to spoil anything but like we have definitely not seen the last of birdbath I guess that is kind of a spoiler because of how this episode ends. But uh, suffice it to say, I'm 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 delighted by the inclusion of Birdbath in any episode, particularly yeah. once I realize that he's not just this sort of you know just this bad guy who's just uh, again I say this every time we talk about an episode of Patriot. I say the same thing, which is in any other show, Birdbath's character is different. In any other show like this, he's just the bad guy. He just sucks, and he's just like the bad guy who's trying to get over. And our hero has to defeat the bad guy. And, of course, because this is Patriot, things never go exactly the way that they would on other shows, which is what makes it endlessly watchable to me. Um, I wrote this down. I don't know if this was just like I was in a – I watched this show. I watched, I stayed up later than I normally do uh, and was watching kind of late at night. So I was making these little notes, and then I went right to bed, and half of them I don't even remember why I did it. I wrote down, does Birdbath's guilt over killing the wrong person somehow amplify Lakeman's feelings? Like – Somehow in the moment, I think I was wondering about that. Maybe because Lakeman, uh, you know, he did the same thing in the hotel room. Mm. Like, they both shot the wrong person. And I wondered if, if that somehow, if, if that's just a coincidence or if that's an echo of something or if that impacts something about how Lakeman's interpreting this stuff. I had not thought of that, but now that you say it, it makes me feel like I should have. Because, yeah, nothing nothing about this show seems accidental right. to me. You know? Right. Yeah. We could assume that somebody thought about that 
uh, you know, before putting it in the script or at least thought about the fact that these are two men who both basically had the course of their life changed by what you could say was an innocent mistake, not to clear birdbath, but it's like birdbath didn't go try to kill someone like he didn't you know, he didn't go murder someone intentionally. He made the wrong decision. He made the wrong decision to be drunk on the job. And, you know, he he's responsible for that. But these are both guys who had the whole course of their life change over one bad decision in a moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I said nothing happens in the show as an accident. But to go backwards for a second in that line about <laughs> they say he was nine, but he was really 14. Part of me did wonder, like, what if that was just like I because I immediately thought, like, that's really brilliant. Then I thought, what if that was just them correcting a writing thing? What if like in an earlier episode, they realized they'd already <laughs> committed to nine? Although I doubt that they were filming. Well, who knows? Maybe they were filming and writing at the same time. Like, what if we found out that it actually was just them correct? They had said nine originally, but then in this story, He's a paper boy, and nine seemed a little bit young, so they wanted to like uh, correct his age, and so they just threw that line in there. I hope that's not the case, but I would feel foolish if I'm putting so much weight on that as writing brilliance, and it turns well, out it was just a, a fixer-upper. Look, Michael Jordan used to get a lot of calls, and he got those calls because he had earned it. So if we're just <laughs> attributing – if there's like a mess-up that we're just like, brilliant, right? it's because the show is – I feel like the show has earned it. So – Good on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, like when I'm hosting Livewire, uh, a lot of times I'll just sometimes somebody will say something and I literally won't know what my response should be or I'll be thinking about something and I'll pause mm-hmm. and the crowd thinks I'm intentionally being funny oh, by yeah. just like like I'm I'm acting gobsmacked and they start to laugh uh-huh. and I'm always like I'll take it even though that is not what I was trying <laughs> yeah, to do right. That was not. I was not playing that for comedy, but it is the most reliable laugh line I could get, but it doesn't translate well to radio. Right. Uh, and to the like 1.5 person listening to this who who doesn't know about TBTL, I guess, and all of my other various jobs, I host a show on public radio called Livewire. Like that's the most reliable laugh that I can get in front of a crowd is to just stop talking and look at whoever has been talking, and the crowd every time laughs because maybe they're just uncomfortable but i think they think it's like a johnny carson moment i heard we're getting a little bit away if if you'll allow a tangent um, will. that's related to this conversation that we're having is i think i heard somebody else kind of accidentally do that on the radio recently but they did it in that way that we were talking about ira glass will do it he says that he's just mm. he learned to be comfortable with silence so that as an interviewer when somebody is done talking he will just sit there and not respond knowing that they will keep on talking and maybe open up more because people want to fill space with words if they feel uncomfortable i'm super guilty of that i was listening to a pretty bad interview on sports radio i don't even remember who it was <laughs> but it was like i turned on the bathroom radio when i was taking a shower and it was just like oh no they're interviewing an athlete which often is not my favorite kind of broadcasting and the person who asked the question did not do it in a good way usually interviewing athletes is kind of tough anyway depending on who the athlete is but this was a young rookie didn't have a lot of media skills is just kind of like ready to answer every question with some kind of dumb cliche that the coach says to say um and then the interviewer himself didn't do a good job because he kind of like asked a question and then gave the the interviewee an answer to go along with it kind of like how does it feel when blank because when i was in that situation i felt blank and blank Mm -hmm. and blank so is that how you're feeling you know and the interviewer (laughs) just goes yeah right and then though i think because the interviewer 
wasn't prepared with another question and kind of didn't realize how much he would ruin that question. He was just <laughs> pausing because he didn't know where to go. But in yeah. that pause, the rookie felt the need to fill in the space and the rookie came through and kind of fleshed out the answer a little bit. It wasn't, it still wasn't like, you know, award winning radio, but I was like, the interviewer just did something accidentally that he should have done on purpose, <laughs> which was just pause <laughs> and see if this kid will just step up and add some more words. You would think that after doing as many different sort of radio jobs as I have, I would be, I would, I would be comfortable doing that. But, but I still am not somehow. Yeah. Like I'm so, like you know, twenty years into this being my job, I still am like the analogy I use all the time is I'm, I'm like a duck and I'm trying to seem kind of calm above the surface of the mm -hmm. water, but I'm paddling so fear. I paddle as furiously now, twenty years later, under the water as I did when I started out. Um, you know, so, uh, I'll say though, and then we can get back to what we're supposed to talk about, which is Amazon's Patriot. But, um, yeah. I think of that analogy all the time because that's how I feel in almost every social interaction, not with you, not when we're hanging out. Like I have my close friends who I'm comfortable with, but like oh, any kind of party situation, any kind of dinner or dinner party or whatever, it's just like, I have that feeling of kind of, and sometimes I kind of don't realize it until later on when I'm exhausted and I kind of realize like, I just like, I somehow kind of take on a burden <laughs> that I don't even need to take on and nobody thinks I'm taking it on where I'm just so nervous of an awkward moment that I feel like I got to keep on flapping my broken wings just to stay afloat. No. Do you think, is Lakeman doing that? Like, what do you think, what do you think is going on beneath the lake? The, the the sort of ex, the the shell of a person that Lakeman is is he is he paddling furiously underwater? I guess so. I mean, I I just keep on thinking about the um, kind of opening vignette, the the puppet show that was being put on by our puppeteer mm. at the beginning of last episode, where she's telling the story of a daughter and her father, mm. and the father just keeps on putting more and more of a burden, a literal burden on her back as, as he steals things and eventually she's just too broken to even say no anymore and i just think john is just mm -hmm. he's just getting broken oh a quick moment of, uh, on that too because i know a huge theme of the show is you know whether or not tom is a bad dad to john and yes. and that whole interaction i think it's really interesting i think this happened in the pipe scene we were just talking about um He's talking about how a get is coming to town to interview John, and he's saying, listen, she's the real deal, man. We're nervous about this because she's a good interviewer, and basically, how do I know that she's a really good cop? Because she's being a bad parent. Now, he specifically well, says she's not a bad parent, but she's been called she's in by neighbors cop. because she's neglecting her daughter, and I don't think that's a coincidence that like Tom takes like, wow, mm. this person is neglecting her child? She must be a good <laughs> cop. Is that how like Tom sees the world that's funny i had written down that yeah she's not a she's not a bad parent she's just a good cop but i hadn't thought about that but you're absolutely right like that's got to be connected like this this idea that that or what the priorities are in life because you have and i mean this is happening on three different in three different scenes you have the kandahar brothers whose dad is doing this to them over there in old jay wick sands mm -hmm. And then you have Tom Tavner who's constantly doing it to his kids. And then you have to, in, in a lesser way, a get prioritizing her job stuff over her daughter. Um, so that's, yeah, that's very much a theme. It's weird. This is, I don't want to go on a huge long tangent. And this is more the kind of talk that unfolds over at TBTL, which you can check out at tbtl.net. But 
it's weird. It's not weird, but it's it's interesting because a big theme of this is the idea that in, sons really want to impress their fathers. It's important to sons, or that sons want to do what their father is asking of them. You know, because of the Kandahar brothers and then because of the Tavner boys, this idea. And it's weird to me because I love my dad very much. I think my dad is awesome. I have never had that kind of relationship mm-hmm. with my dad. Like, I'm not a person who spends any time at all ever worrying about what my dad's opinion is of me. Now, maybe that's a luxury because my dad's a really kind guy. And so I'm not worried about him judging me. And it's also just how I grew up. He just was – he was a great dad, but that was just never the dynamic. I have no sense of, like, what will my dad think or am I making him proud or am I disappointing him? That's just never been the dynamic. And this is a show that's driven by that dynamic. I mean, I don't know if John wants to make his dad proud or if he just doesn't know how to say no to his dad. Mm-hmm. I when when the father Kandahar uh, hugs his son. Um, what was the father's name again? Did you say it was uh, Wallace? Wallace. Wallace. Yeah. Um, when he's hugging Kaiman, uh, and th- there's just something so warm and truly loving about the embrace. I was just kind of like. <laughs> This is a silly thing to say. But I, I saw that embrace. I'm like, I'm a bad son. It was just weird. I just had this oh. initial reaction. I just kind of, and of course, like I actually have a pretty good relationship with my dad, I think. And we've had a lot of warm moments. But some there's something, you know, I definitely live in kind of a 2019 uh, style family, right? I'm very far away from most of my family. I'm not particularly close to a lot of my family members. Uh, and that's not on them. I mean, that's, that's on me and, and me deciding to move away and all this stuff. But there is something about me that when I see a real, real close family and I have friends who are just in like much, much closer families or in a scene like this, I sometimes I think like, oh, man, mm. have I have I been like, am I going to regret uh, not being closer with my family? And there was something about that embrace that kind of brought a lot of that up. I'm, this is a very confessional uh, edition yeah. of Macmillan. Episode. Man. Yeah. More so than the Now, if your dad asked you to go retrieve a bag with 11 million euro in it or whatever it is would even if you know you're gonna have to break a few eggs would you because that's the danger of if you move back to ohio as soon as you and your dad bond that's the first thing he's gonna right. ask you to do. yeah well i guess it depends on what he what he wants to do with those euros <laughs> now um, if he asked me to pick up a bag of a few million a few million euros i'll definitely do that because oh, i assume that i'd get yeah. to eat a few of those but please yeah. sauce on the side that's making me hungry now. Maybe. There's a Greek place here in town where I live that I'm, I drove by last night. And you know how the seed of an idea of a food you're going to eat mm-hmm. that that thing may not even bloom for yeah. weeks, but yeah. that seed gets planted. <laughs> I know that it's, it's been growing in my mind. Uh, speaking of things that are growing in people's minds, Alice and Aget uh, have now crossed paths, and there uh, are all kinds of uh, coincidences. Uh, they they bond on, on their drive to Milwaukee, and uh, I think it's kind of funny because uh, Alice, you know, she, she's like me in that she invents, quote unquote, invents these mm-hmm. apps that she doesn't actually invent. She doesn't. She just thinks of them. And one of them was the one, you know, of course, that was like, uh, if, if a person, if you let a person in front of you in traffic, would they wave? Thank you. And then the other one, uh, is that hers or is that actually, was that a gets? No, 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 that, that's one? hers. That's Alice's. Cause she, can I okay. ask you a quick question? She mentions that yeah. earlier on in the series, pretty early on, in fact. And all this time, I've been thinking that her job was to, was that she was a coder, that she makes apps for a living. Was I supposed to think that? Or did we know that this was just a flight of fancy of hers? I, th- I thought that she, 
I thought she was a coder as okay. well. And I think that's like one of the funny reveals is that because the way John talked or the way they talked about it, you didn't have any sense that this was just kind of a run, I guess, presumably sort of a running joke. Yeah. That she just like her joke is coming up with things. Oh, wouldn't that be great if that was an app? But yeah, the first time we hear about it, I assume that she worked like for a, you know, app design company or something. Because mm-hmm, I development think, company. Because I think we hear it on the little recording that she is sending to him. They're communicating by sharing MP3s, and she's just telling a story. And I think she just says, "I'm working on a new app." I think that's how she puts it, which is a, a right. hilarious reveal here. Also, yeah. a hilarious reveal. Literally, probably the shortest scene of a movie. They cut to them in the car, and you just hear him say. One, two, three, Kramer, which is a, a callback to a conversation that John and Rob Saperstein had when they on their drunken night in Amsterdam a while back where they're discussing who's your favorite. I think they do the same exact thing, only you hear the setup. Who's your favorite uh, character on Seinfeld? And they go, uh, one, two, three, <laughs> Elaine. Yeah. Um, so uh, Get and Alice are are sort of hitting it off. Again, there's like a little parallel between uh, Get and Alice – and uh, and Edward and uh, Keeman. You know, you've got these people that just are bumping into each other, and they would be they would really be great friends in a different version of this universe. But their interests are 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 you know in opposition, and they don't even know it. Most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, John's a little buddy is back. His most un the most unhelpful help helper is back Ugh. in this hotel room as he's trying to learn how to throw a football with his left hand yeah. and at one point the helper's just kind of like huh, guess you're gonna have a rough day like he's just even on like an yeah. emotional I human level guy. he is just he's negging john all, it's like he's rooting against john the guy that he's supposed to be offering support for for life and death and the future of the free world as we know it yeah i hate that guy <laughs> even the outfits they put him in there's mm. something about a guy in a short sleeve collared shirt that's just like I don't know if we're gonna I don't know if we're gonna be friends. Yeah, just he just exudes officiousness. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, is uh, if I remember right, isn't a get a get is playing a um, Timon and Saperstein song? Yes, in the car, right? That's I wondered if that strained credulity a little bit. Although uh-huh. the way they play the recording, it does sound different because I mean Alice has heard John sing. So many uh-huh. times, and I mean, you would assume that as she's like worried about him and not knowing where he mm-hmm. is, and he's sending her these recordings of him singing songs specifically to her. You would assume that she's just listened to them over and over and over again, and that's not even counting the the family time where they're together and he pulls out a guitar. So you would think that hearing a recording of her husband singing folk music would, um, and she does say, "God, it sounds familiar." You would think that it would sound very familiar and she'd figure it out. But, you know, to the producer's credit, it's a very different sound. It's not mic'd as closely as it usually is. And Rob Saperstein's voice kind of covers up John's for a lot of it. Yeah. Um, I thought it was also kind of funny that Alice totally parks in Leslie's spot. Like, that is a family Mm -hmm. trait, apparently. Mm -hmm. That That is ingrained in the Tavner, what we're going to call her a Tavner. Uh, in the in the DNA of this family is you're going to park like of all the parking spots she parks in Leslie's new spot right of course yeah. because Leslie's like that's that's such a big deal to him the 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 parking priority you know is yeah. a, is a biggie um uh then there's the the moment where Alice goes and finds Dennis and this is kind of i think a sort of fairly big plot point the way that Alice explains to Dennis how she knew to find him. Mm-hmm. The, to me, this is like 
this is undoing most of the bad will that has been that's popped up of late from John telling Dennis that like, hey, I'll kill you if I need to, basically, or I'll hurt you real bad. But for him to figure out that he actually means something to John, you can see that's a big deal to Dennis. Yes, Dennis was it seemed legit crushed when his wife rejected him. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say uh, John's friendship means more to Dennis than Dennis's wife's love means to him. And oh, yeah. Life. There's one thing that drives Dennis at this point in his life, and that is feeling like he is a true friend, maybe even a best friend of John's. Yes, 100%. Um, and then we get the big meeting where Leslie gets announced as as the – well, that's pretty funny too, the way it unfolds between him and Lawrence because, you know, like it's sort of like Lawrence has just – Lawrence has just like opened the cage and let like a 800-pound tiger out, which he thought they were going to be collaborating for this circus show. But it became it became clear right away that this tiger is going to do it at once. And if Lawrence doesn't like it, he can – go get in the cage himself or something because like immediately Leslie just takes over the meeting. Yeah. He just tells him to sit down. Thank you for joining us this morning, this new morning, an exciting new morning of changes and the introduction of a new shared leadership. I'd like to announce as of this morning, divisional head, Leslie Claret will now be sharing leadership with me in every capacity across every department side by side. Let's welcome Leslie Claret on this new morning. Leslie. Can I interject one thing here that caught my eye that it might be just nothing, but I'm confused by it. You know, there's a room full of people. I'm going to say there's, I don't know, 15 people, 20 people gathered in this room for this announcement. And it's a kind of a casual affair. People are sitting on their desks. Some are standing. Some are sitting in office chairs that have been kind of pulled into the middle of the room. It's a very kind of familiar feeling to anybody who's kind of worked in an office space like this. But kind of in the foreground of the shot is a woman who clearly works for the company and as Lawrence is making this announcement, her face looks really pained. And then when it's time for everybody to start clapping, did you notice that she claps really slowly and looks like really concerned? I don't think our attention no. is supposed to be on her. But I, again, in a show where very few things are accidental, I was really wondering what was going on with her. But I don't. Huh. You know, I've seen the whole series. I don't think it ever comes back to to mean anything. But if if you happen to go back and rewatch this episode, watch that woman in the foreground. She makes me uneasy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lawrence. Folks, what do we do essentially here at McMillan? We design complex delivery systems for the wrong. Sit down. God. No, seriously. We're sending mixed signals. God. Alpha. God. We make circles. Circles don't exist in nature, folks. The sun? No. Planets? Not quite. Now, what's that reminiscent of? The color blue doesn't appear in nature, right? Yeah, exactly. Blueberries, sort of, I guess. Circles are perfect, and nothing perfect exists in nature. Flaws and all. Slightly oblong. Our planets. The sun. Like us. <laughs> but here, at Macmillan, we make them. And we place them in the world. The perfect form 
across the world. We make circles. And all you have to care about, the only thing that you have to care about, is this one little thing. Perfection. (laughs) Uh, Come on now. It's just a goal. It's not a demand. No one is perfect. But what I need to know, what I need to see in you is capacity for perfection. The desire to be perfect. Stephen, John, come up here. Now he's going to ask them to draw a couple of circles on the overhead. Not supposedly. I picked the wrong day to pretend to be left handed. (laughs) Exactly right. So, of course, John goes to draw his circle and it looks just like he's got a palsy. Oh, my God. I know. It's so like it's like you talk about feeling uncomfortable in certain scenes. For me, the times when John is disappointing Leslie, mm-hmm. those are the scenes that I feel the most deeply uncomfortable watching because it's just like Leslie, as he explains later on, he, he's he's trying to set John up for success. Mm-hmm. And because of these extenuating circumstances, it's always just the wrong thing in that moment for John to be trying to do whatever it happens to be. Yeah, that's the most painful part of this is when he comes and approaches John later. Because you're kind of, as the viewer, I feel like I was just thinking like, uh, another John disappointment. But Leslie knows that this kid is going to get fired. He's been waiting to fire this guy since the moment he was hired. And now he has the capacity to do so. And so... You figure Leslie isn't even really thinking about John other than a lame duck that he's going to take care of pretty quickly. Hey, duck. Ducks come into this, too. Um, But then when he approaches John later and says, I just and and you learn, at least according to Leslie, if you're going to take him at his word, he's still trying with John. He doesn't. I think if John continues to be a failure, Leslie sort of sees himself as a bit of a failure. He definitely sees himself as a father figure to people like Stephen and, uh, you know, potentially to John, too. And so all of John's mistakes, I think Leslie sees as a reflection on himself in some way. And somehow he can't give up on the John Lakeman project. And he just he said, I just wanted to do one thing, just like I thought of the simplest task you could do, Mm. which is just draw a circle that doesn't embarrass me in front of everybody. And you couldn't even do that. Which is funny because he is planning on firing him as soon as the duck hunt is over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So still, but he still, he can't let it go though. Yeah, he's like, you know, he's changing the oil on a car that he's about to send to the junkyard. Yeah. But, but he, yeah, you're right. He just, I think he is, yeah, I think he sees himself as a mentor, you know, uh, in this industry. And, uh, and, and so he, he kind of can't turn that off. Um, so we, we, this is sort of the tension is obviously building as uh, John is on his way to, we think, maybe kill Birdbath. Aget is following him. They have the Rochambeau off to end all Rochambeaus. Mm-hmm. My practical question about this is how did they remember the order of rock, paper, and scissor? How do you do that rhythmically? Like that's a, that there's no there's no cut in that scene. Like which would have the easy way to do it would have been to cut to, uh, to a close up of their hands. But of course, because these were dealing with really great filmmakers here, they don't. The whole scene is unedited, which means they had to do it right. 
What do you think? This came up in the uh, AMA with Stephen Conrad, um, and I'm oh, looking at it right now. Somebody nice. said, how was the extended Rochambeau sequence in Patriot filmed? Had the actors memorized the whole sequence? Uh, P.S. It's perfection. That came from a, a, a <laughs> viewer, and, uh, and Stephen Conrad says, thank you. Uh, Mike and Aliette just spent a lot of time after work practicing. They spent months, which is one of the reasons I love them. And so apparently there was nothing, behind, no cards behind them or anything other than just like, like strict memorization. I'm, wow. I mean, that scene is, I mean, incredible. How did and, that not win an Emmy? Right. Is there an Emmy for scene, like just that scene is, if that, if that, if that was, that justifies the entire show, that scene. I also, like, and I get nervous just as a viewer knowing that these are actors doing this. I'm kind of like, don't right. break. Because I was staring at their faces, and a couple of times it looked like I saw just the slightest upturn of one of their lips. And I'm kind of like, don't break. Like, because it also must be funny to them, right? These are just two, two yeah. actors doing this thing, and it's important that they get it right. But also, they must just be thinking about how hilarious it is, too. And so not only do they have to keep getting it right as actors, but they also, they can't break uh, kind of comedically. And also, I love how their hands get more and more tense as it goes on. Mm. His paper almost becomes like a curve because he's flattening uh-huh. his hand so much that he's actually you know, pushing his joints out in a way. You can see the veins on her uh, hand when she's throwing rock and scissors starts to stick out more and more. That is such an intense and beautiful scene. It's funny because it's another example of this show making an otherwise sort of childish game be an indication of sort of intelligence. They did it with Battleship. Like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. He's yeah. just like the, you know, he's a he's sort of savant at Battleship. Uh, I guess that would be uh, is now I can't even remember which which character that is. If that's if that is, is that the physicist as a kid? I feel like it was the Bagman. But um, like that's a thing where they take they take Battleship and they elevate it to something that people are playing competitively internationally, and this is like rock paper scissors or Rochambeau as an indication of intelligence, which is uh, why this whole scene is you know because Agathe has also done Rochambeau against Alice, and she says you're really good, and that's like five percent of what she ends up running into with John. So she knows now that she is dealing with somebody who has superior training and is uh. If not a superior intellect, certainly somebody who has a lot going on be- below the surface to be able to do that. And let me just say, you know, no, of course it was the physicist. Uh, in the in the thirty seconds since I said that, I heard a million emails coming my way. Of course it it wasn't um, it wasn't the Bagman because we saw him as a kid growing up in Jaywick Sands. Jay You're right. It was the yeah. uh, it was the physicist who was coming over, I think, to the United States to compete. I almost wish that in that scene, John. I mean, it's a great scene. I'm glad it exists, but it's like. I, in a way, John is playing his hand, <laughs> literally oh. and figuratively. He's tipping his hand because, like, were there any doubt in her mind? Like, if there was any level, uh, any po- small chance that she thought, I'm just dealing with a, a piping engineer at this company in Milwaukee. That is a big, gigantic uh, red flag, you know, um, flashing uh, arrow saying, no, this is a guy who's got some training going on. This isn't a criticism. I'm just going to kind of – because I don't know if I believe what I'm going to say. I just want to kind of air it out a little (laughs) bit. I guess maybe the one thing is is if Rochambeau is a stand-in for how well people can read people, which I think it is, Mm -hmm. and that's why I get it so good at it, um, I would say that one of John's um, Mm -hmm. deficits – 
in his spy craft is his inability to know what people want or to anticipate needs and, and his interactions with people, right? That's why everything with um, Leslie has gone so south so early. Right. Yeah, he has he's he has a difficult time with the social aspect of life and and you know he's not like a smooth talking spy who just sort of like is a chameleon and can blend in anywhere. He's actually especially bad at blending in because, you know. So yeah, so that is kind of interesting. I guess maybe that yeah, I don't I'm with you that it's not if it is about if it is about reading people and and, and sort of some or assessing things that's not doesn't seem to be his strong suit although he does seem to know what needs to be done in the moment when push finally comes to shove mm-hmm. yeah. he has some sort of like there is some sort of like instinct that kicks in for him when it's time to jump off a building or break a branch or go after someone he kind of knows what to do so maybe this is for him part of that whole yeah uh skill set uh, I don't. This means nothing except I wrote it down because I thought maybe there's. I'm becoming one of those people that's like you're going to find me with a room full of like things I've printed out from the show and strings going from one thing to another. I made a note of the Scrabble words that are being played in the or the words with friends or whichever one it is. Yeah, yeah. This the, the this fake Scrabble game that they use to communicate. It is bold, solid, and seat. Bold down, solid across, and then seat also down. It probably means nothing, but I just wrote it down because I was I was curious if this show is just, you know, so detail oriented. I wondered if they wouldn't I wondered if there was going to be something on the Scrabble board that was just a little in joke. Yeah. And um, we had mentioned the the um, listener email that that was talking about how uh, Mr. Mud was an in joke that I totally missed. That was from listener Schaefer. Um, I had noticed seat as well. Only I didn't pause it and examine. I just saw that somebody played seat for eight points, which just seems like such a, a weak Scrabble move. And I wasn't sure if it was kind of <laughs> like, well, we don't, we don't have time to play the game. We're yeah. just like throwing this out there. Or if it's just because like Edward's just kind of dumb. Um, right. I, I wasn't sure about that. Can, I want to jump though. I, I, I mean, we're basically there, but can I say that, um, the Rob Saperstein development. Yeah. I completely, completely forgot about that. And it shocked me anew when uh, mm. John opens up his, he, he goes to his, what is it? His uh, modern traditional folk music forum. He sees the latest message from Neo Greg folk. 12. <laughs> Neo folk. Uh, he sees the latest message from Greg 12, who he's in a fight with. Um, and then he gets this MP3, which is a very, very, it's a very, uh, well, John Lakeman-esque folk song, a very literal folk song from his friend Rob Saperstein that is essentially a suicide note. And then we see yeah. Saperstein throwing, because remember when we first meet him, we see him making a noose and then he, John kind of inadvertently saves his life uh, by kind of getting into his world. And now it looks like he's going back to the noose. And honestly, when I was watching that yesterday, I was like, this isn't how it ends for him, is it? Like, I couldn't remember if he comes yeah. back or not, but I don't, I don't, I think it's real. I don't think he does. Like, yeah, I had brutal. the exact same thought. I had forgotten about it. It's so sad the way that he's kind of, Rob is doing that thing where he's trying to kind of, you know, almost like manage John's experience as he's learning that Rob's taken his own life. The fact that he slings the rope over the kayak the damn kayak it's just mm-hmm. like yeah because you kind of like you know it's it's like the rob character is kind of constantly hitting rock bottom he's got you know he's behind in his child support payments it's just not working for him and 
you can't help but feel sad too. Like he's a little bit. I mean, granted, had he never met John, who knows? Maybe his life would have bottomed out even earlier. But you can't help but kind of feel like if John would have been in a different place when those guys were running into each other in Luxembourg, then he could have maybe like like you know because John every time he and John ran into into each other in Luxembourg, John was like in the middle of some bullshit going on mm-hmm. so he could never just go to the bar with him and hang out and like drink a couple beers um and then of course he also does the thing where he kind of messes up the festival or whatever like you feel like if john would have been in a place where he was more emotionally available to the degree that john is emotionally available for anyone if he could have been a better friend to rob maybe rob doesn't kill himself yeah and i'm uh, I, i'm both in a position I'm, I'm doing some noodling around the internet here to see if that is the end of him for sure or not i'm embarrassed that i don't remember having watched the this entire series and, right um i'm i i won't say i won't say i i i honestly don't know if, if this is the end of the line for him or not i'm embarrassed to say that having watched this already i can't remember but i will say it was a really it was a really emotional thing to see, and they do a really uh, nice job of it. And then they they show John's face, like after listening to the song and realizing what's going on. We see the first—is it the first actual tear? No, I guess not. I think we've seen John cry before, but um, just everything. I mean, he is just as if as if he wasn't already completely broken. Like this just breaks him. Yeah, I know because Rob represents this. You know. Probably, uh, uh, you know, other than maybe Alice and maybe some childhood memories with his brother, like the Rob thing has been a very a, a tiny bit of happiness for him to be, you know, playing music with him and getting to do that. That's just like that. That's his happy place, I would think. Mm-hmm. And so to know that that guy's now dead, it's just like, come on. It's one thing when some, you know, fellow CIA agent dies, but it's like this It just means a lot to him. You can tell. And that's a like like he can't even have that anymore he can't even have that thought of maybe someday rob and i can get together get the band back together or whatever and i would assume um, that he feels some probably guilt about it too that if he had been yeah. maybe there and i think i think that's part of it too not even like that not even that that avenue is closed to me but that he couldn't have been a good enough friend to prevent that from happening yeah and then we end the episode as is so often the case with something that's just so provocative and you're like what how is this the good news, again, about the fact that I was probably mostly drunk when I watched the first round of these is that I literally don't remember what happens in the next episode. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. He says to Aget, she finally catches up with him. They finally are starting to have their conversation. Is there anything you'd like to say? And he says, yes, I'm not really an industrial engineer. I don't know what he's – I don't know – I don't know what he's going to say next. I've literally forgotten. <laughs> so I am on tenterhooks about this. I remember some broad strokes, but – uh, not enough to get into it here, and also we don't want to spoil it. Can I uh, ask you a question, though? Now we're at the you end. Can. I want to go back all the way to the very, very, very beginning. Um, I did not understand the kind of slate at the beginning. You know, they always have some sort of arty way of showing the episode title and number. And this time, I don't know if you remember it, it's like a piece of paper, it looks like, where it says Patriot on the piece of paper and kind of a, a nice font. And then there's a... Um, then there's like a there's three polished stones and a pair of oh oh god rock paper scissors of course sorry there's a pair of scissors there's some rocks and there's a piece of paper that says the number eight it's rock paper scissors oh well you know what don't beat yourself up too much because I didn't even put that together had I would have written that into my notes and I noticed it so obviously I saw it too and didn't didn't pick up the let's just say unsubtle symbolism mm-hmm. of that. 
Now I get it. Yeah. I had to actually, because I'd been staring at it, and I was thought of it yesterday. I'm like, I don't get it. Yet I had to, like, literally say it out loud. Like, well, there's three rocks, and then there's some scissors. Rochambeau. <laughs> um, all right. Well, anything else that you want to say about this episode? Anything that we... We uh, forgot to address or that you have on your notes that you have a burning desire to talk about? No, I think that's it. It is definitely a heavy, heavy episode, but also I just think one of the, one of the, just like kind of the, again, I don't want to say the peak of the show because it makes it sound like it goes downhill from there, but just as far as the, the creativity and the, the filmmaking that goes into the show, the acting, the performances, like it's just, you watch this episode and now like I think for the first time as an audience like there isn't a lot being withheld at this point so much of the so much of the series has been relying on okay well we don't know the full story yet we don't have the whole picture and while the plot is still moving forward here and it doesn't feel like it's slowed down I think this is the first time we really kind of know what all the parts are and how they interact with each other and seeing it all come together and kind of how it's symbolized again in that pipe scene as people are coming and going um i just think that this is just a, this episode is a goddamn masterpiece i feel like uh when i rewatch this i'm always thinking oh this was the best um you know uh i always think oh this is the best episode or this is the best scene or this is the scene that made me fall in love with the show and they just keep happening because there's yeah. so many of them yeah it's amazing um well i guess that's it uh so we'll wrap things up maybe do you have our little uh outro yeah, we'll go music to the secret agent man again yeah let's do that sure why not um, thanks for listening. Uh, we are going to take a break next week, just FYI, because uh, we are doing a mini national tour for our other show, TBTL. I know most of the listeners know that because they listen to TBTL, but I hold out hope that there's four people that came over from Reddit mm-hmm. um, and are listening to this and are just like, who are these fascinating, well-informed, organized young men mm-hmm. doing this program about Patriot? Uh, I'm trying to put on airs for those listeners. So to the TBTL listeners, don't blow it for us. Um, we uh, we are going to take next week off because we're going to be traveling the country, um, traveling north, traveling north to find <laughs> us. Uh, so uh, so yeah. So next week, no McMillan men, but then uh, presumably we'll pick it up the week after that. For so uh, two so more just, episodes, uh, right? Two more episodes in this um, in this particular season, season and, and we might want to take a break between. We haven't really talked about that yet either, but I'm really excited yeah. to uh, talk about those last two. All right, so that's the plan. Uh, no show next week, but then we'll pick it up right after that. Uh, thanks for listening to this. Uh, please remember to always keep it double great. Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger With every move he makes Another chance he takes Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow Secret agent man Secret agent man They've given you a number And taken away your name Rochambeau?